when I start to think about how we've designed our society, especially understanding the context of invisible work and this idea that our social safety net in America is women's unpaid labor, it was really an understanding that to do that, we have to convince women that their time is worthless. As a society, we've decided to value men's time as if it's finite like diamonds, and we've decided to devalue women's time as if it's sand. Hi, and welcome to the New Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Carolyn Childers. And I'm Lindsay Kaplan, and we're the co-founders of Chief, the network of the most powerful women in business. So usually on this podcast, we talk about challenges that leaders, and women leaders in particular, are facing at work. But because of this pandemic, there's been more emphasis than ever that in order to achieve equality at work, you first need to achieve it at home. Women and men have the same 24 hours a day, and yet women are twice as likely to perform household chores as men, even when they're the breadwinners in the relationship. And women spend 50% more time on caregiving responsibilities than men, like scheduling their children's playdates or dentist appointments or meal planning, which I do none of because I am a horrible cook. (laughs) I mean, you also don't have kids. So (laughs) is it any surprise when the pandemic hit, millions of women exited the workforce and we've yet to see over half a million of them return? So Linz, as the one of us that is managing a full household, how you doing over there? I mean, I think I know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, my brain is always on fire. And when I look back at when the pandemic started, I mean, I was on mat leave with a three-month-old. My older son was in Zoom pre-K, which isn't a thing. And I had a full-blown meltdown. Uh, I I remember. I was there. (laughs) And thank God you were. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we know that a crisis like the COVID pandemic not only reveals but actually exacerbates the existing inequities in society. So today we're talking about the root of the issue, which is how indoctrinated we've all become to these traditional gender roles that are still around today and how to finally break free if that's even possible. One woman does think it's possible, and that's Eve Rodsky, the director of the new documentary series Fair Play, based on her New York Times bestselling book. She talks about how the household mental load shows up and impacts women's ability to rise to leadership levels in the workplace. And most importantly, she provides solutions on how to achieve fair play, as she says, in the home and at work. Eve, welcome to the podcast. Lindsay and Carolyn, I've been listening to you season one and catching up on season two. So I feel very honored to be here because you have really, really important and necessary conversations. So thank you for having me. We're thrilled that you are joining us because this is such an important topic for us to dive into and certainly something that chief members talk about a lot. To take a step back, would love to hear what you were experiencing in your life that gave you the idea for your book, Fair Play. It started with what I call now my blueberries breakdown with my husband, Seth, sending me a text that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. But what I don't really get to do is like, for you to picture the scene, right? This is right after my second son, Ben, was born. I was on maternity leave. I was losing my direct reports at the time. My job was telling me that if I wanted to come back and have privacy for breastfeeding, I'd have to pump in a supply closet. So anyway, it was around that time, I had a breast pump in a diaper bag in the passenger seat of my car. I was starting my own firm, as I said, because I was about to leave 
the corporate workplace. And now I say forced out. No one ever leaves on purpose. They get forced out, especially if you're a woman. And in the midst of all that, as I was racing to get my son, Zach, at his toddler transition program, that's when Seth decides to send me this text. I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. I, I, I had no words to communicate how I was feeling, the overwhelm, the exhaustion, the boredom, the erasure of my identity. So instead, I found myself just sobbing on the side of the road over this text, thinking to myself, you know, I'm the fulfiller of my husband's smoothie needs. That's sort of what my identity has become. And um, more importantly, how it had how had this happened? How had I become, you know, sort of the chief decision maker, the CEO of the home, the default, or as I call in fair play for any family structure, the pronoun, the she fault for my family. And that that's that was the first day that I awoke where I, I felt like something was wrong. And it was one of the only times in my life where I didn't feel like I had a solution to the problem. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think we can all imagine the kind of tasks that still fall to women by default due to those traditional gender roles from cooking and cleaning and raising the children. But can you tell us what you mean when you refer to like the household mental load? I think I'd started where most people start, Carolyn, which is I thought a spreadsheet would save me. I thought if I just made a giant list, like the best list that's ever existed, this problem would go away because I had started to research the term second shift and mental load. Ironically, I was anti-gender studies in college, so I never even heard of these terms before in my own life. I, you know, I'm, I'm squarely Gen X of the, you know, you act like men and you ignore your home and you ignore your children. You don't put up your kids' pictures in your office and you absolutely block off your calendar and don't say where you're going if you're doing something domestic. So I'm of that generation. I think what was really interesting to me was this project, which became the Fair Play System, started with the Should I Do spreadsheet. It started with calling all those women at the breast cancer march and then people I didn't even know and asking them, what is it that you do that's invisible to your partners? The term invisible work I love the most because that was coined in 1986 by a woman named Arlene Kaplan-Daniels, a sociologist who said women's work will never ever be valued because it's too uh, expensive for a capitalist society to value women's unpaid labor because God forbid we had to pay for it um, or pay for it at market rates and not um, exploit black and brown women for doing it. So, you know, there's a lot of systemic issues around this. But for me, it was starting with the Should I Do spreadsheet and nine months later, having a 98-tab spreadsheet with 2,000 items of invisible work. And so what do I mean by that? Well, of course I mean, you know, filling out school forms and making school lunches, which is 10 minutes, logging onto the school form portals, which is like our entire lifetimes. But it was actually capturing things like women I didn't even know said, you know, well, Eve, I don't see Girl Scout cookies ordering and sales on here. You know, that's five hours. You know, you put down only two minutes for applying sunscreen, but what about 30 minutes for the chase? It was that granular. That's how I got to 2,000 items, where it was this beautiful, beautiful spreadsheet and I loved it so much. And then I finally sent it off to Seth. And it was the first time I felt I wasn't alone. I will say I didn't have Chief back then, right? I didn't have any community. You guys are early um, adopters and pioneers in this idea that, you know, women need different networking opportunities. But back then, it was super isolating. So I sent this spreadsheet to Seth with no context, just, you know, can't wait to discuss. And I'll just tell you, it did not solve my problems. Seth didn't even give me a response. 
he gave me the monkey emoji that's covering its eyes. Uh, I didn't even get the courtesy of the three monkey trio, just the see no evil monkey emoji. But I will say that at the same time, women, because this is before things went viral, there wasn't really social media. It was just Facebook back then. But when the spreadsheet was going around 11 years ago, I had women coming up to me or calling me even saying, you know, I got your spreadsheet from the Jewish Federation of Arizona. And I just want to let you know, Eve, that I'm not staying in my marriage. So I start to really think about what happens when you unleash consciousness, but you don't have a solution. From that point on, when I understood that lists don't work, but systems do, and I'm a systems builder, that's what I do for a living, I became on an obsessive mission to start changing what the systems look like, what the defaults look like. And I had a huge, huge post-it on my wall that said, trading assumptions for structured decision-making, because that's how you end bias. When you trade assumptions for structured decision-making, it really, really helps. Can you speak more about that structured decision-making and how it shows up? I need it. I got to start incorporating it more. (laughs) Well, it shows up everywhere, right? I think before this, what was so interesting, Lindsay and Carolyn, was we're trained as lawyers to design systems, right? Or to design the world. You know, you want people to stop at a stop sign, you pass a law. You want people not to have reproductive rights you pass a law. So I think it's funny that there's this new trend to design thinking where lawyers have been, we've been design thinking, you know, our whole lives. So in that context of understanding that when I start to think about how we've designed our society, especially understanding the context of invisible work and this idea that our social safety net in America is women's unpaid labor, it was really an understanding that to do that, we have to convince women that their time is worthless. And so we do that in many insidious ways, right? The presenting problem is not the real problem as mediators, as we say. It's not about blueberries or who left a sponge in the sink. It's really that as a society, we've decided to value men's time as if it's finite like diamonds. And we've decided to to devalue women's time as if it's sand. And I'll tell you how we know that. If women enter a male profession, salaries automatically come down. Yes. We tell women breastfeeding is free. When it's 1,800 hours a year, it's it's a literal full-time job. But the hardest thing for me was to recognize how deeply ingrained it was in women. And it comes up in four ways. And, And I will ask your listeners, have you ever said to yourself, you know, I do more in the home because my job is more flexible, or I do more in the home because my partner makes more money than me, or I do more in the home because I'm a better multitasker, I see things my partner doesn't. Or I do things in the home because in the time it takes me to tell him or they what to do, I should do it myself. Or yes, we're both colorectal surgeons, but my partner is better at focusing on one task at a time and I can find the time. Look, you know, we're not Albert Einstein. We can't fuck with the space-time continuum. There's no way to find time. But what I realized in the past 10 years of doing this work is that we have very, very different expectations over women or how they're supposed to spend their time. That was how Seth and I finally broke through to getting to play the fair play system. When I realized, oh my God, you know, time is just 24 hours in a day. And regardless of how much I make or any of these other issues, my time is just as valuable as Seth's time. And when he gets four hours after our kids go to bed to check sports center or work out, finish a PowerPoint deck, and I'm doing things in service of our home till my head hits the pillow two hours after he's asleep, that's fundamentally unfair. And I will not live like that anymore. And so that's a true boundary. We're hearing a lot about boundaries these days. A true boundary, I think, for women, especially, is this idea that our time is diamonds. 
and that we're not going to give it away for free. It's our most valuable currency. But that was the hardest thing. If you ask me really what was the hardest thing for me to unlearn, it was these assumptions I had about how I spend my time. So that's how you kind of created this boundary. But there's a second person in that equation that also has to like redefine what that looks like. How did that transpire for you? What is the next step after you set your boundary? Where do you go from there? Well, I think I asked that question, Carolyn, to a lot of women who look like the chief members. And I got a really interesting answer. I got, well, the way you do that is just three words. It was court-ordered custody. And my mom did that. My father left. We were a single-parent household. That felt like a privileged narrative to me because at that time, you know, I was working in a nonprofit as a COO, you know, or whatever, like throughout my career and then went to uh, this corporate workplace and then started my own firm. Like, you know, this idea of being able to just leave and get into a huge custody battle, it just felt like a very privileged narrative. The other narrative, of course, is like eat, pray, love it out of your life. That also can be a very privileged narrative. So for me, I was really looking for the other thing I put on a post-it was like divorce for married people. I really wanted to understand what this beautiful weekend of distraction-free work and attention to yourself could look like. And I wanted to do it in the confines of my own home. And yes, it did require another person's agreeing to do that. But also that person wanted to stay married to me. And so this is a very heteronormative conversation because we are talking to men here. This is absolutely about men doing housework and childcare. We have to invite men to step into their full power in their home so that women can step out into their full power in the world. But these family structures, these assumptions over women's time being less valuable than men's time, it affects single parents the worst uh, who have caregiving responsibilities. And it's actually, in fact, it's 75% of our wage gap is this bias against mothers for exactly the things we're talking about. My opinion, I'm just going to say it, is that there is a major issue in the expectations of what parents have to deliver on because childcare is so expensive, because schools are sending home so much crap for parents to do, and the hours are shorter, that the role of parent has gotten so much more intense uh, for this generation than it has decades prior. Absolutely. There's two things, right? We expect women to work now. But we don't want them in the workplace. That's the real problem, right? Pew has had study after study that shows 60% of Americans still want a parent in the home. I think the real problem is that we've never really accepted women in the workplace, ever. That's why we need chief. We need to build our own networks. We have to challenge this assumption uh, because we've always had to be here. You know, women of color have always had to be breadwinners in their family. But we, our ideal family structure in America is still a single family earner and somebody who stays home. And so we're living in that single family structure, Lindsay, but women need to make money because of income inequality. We need women's salaries. So we're living under the assumption that somebody is doing it all and that all has just gotten bigger, but women's time has gotten consolidated because we have to also be in the workplace. So it's completely unsustainable. In Davos in February of 2020, I looked at all these male leaders and said, you know, we are one crisis away from losing 30 to 40 years of women's labor force participation, and you don't give a shit. I can't believe that you care about women being in the workplace because every single one of you before our conversation came up to me and told me your own ideal family structure, the one that you live in, is that you have a stay-at-home wife. That conversation at a systemic level is yes. So I think it's, of course, it's parental expectations, but it's also the fact that we 
have never fully accepted women in the workplace. Yeah. I I think it's 70% of the highest earning men have a stay-at-home spouse. Correct. But for highest earning women, it's only 22% of them that actually have a stay-at-home significant other or spouse. What do you attribute that paradox to? Well, I think my generation, you know, Gen X has, I think, done a real disservice because we were part of perpetuating this idea that, you know, having it all obviously means doing it all and it's completely unsustainable. I think it comes down to the toxic time messages. Men understand that distraction-free work is how you get promoted in America. But distraction-free work, the idea that I can focus 1 million percent on my job because I have no distractions and you'll never hear of a distraction. Distraction-free work is inherently sexist. There was one time you journal study that I love in the pandemic. Women were interrupted every three minutes and 42 seconds, or the family was interrupted every three minutes and 42 seconds. We now know that women increased their unpaid labor by 153%, according to Pipeline Equity um, Survey, and men start to take the physical space where they could lock a door. Um, They said, I'm not going to have my child interrupt me. Interruptions were considered bad, but women manage interruptions all the time. That's why I ultimately think that men have gotten the memo that to to succeed in America, you need distraction-free work. And over time, the men who are in the top structures of our country, in our businesses, and as you said, the 70% or the 1% who have stay-at-home partners, they're running our country. And so their lived experience looks inherently different than the rest of us. So on the flip side, women are increasingly becoming the primary earner. But studies also show that the women who are out earning their husbands are spending more time on household tasks. What accounts for that, that they are making the money, they are in that executive role, and yet now they're doing even more in the household? Are they compensating? Is it guilt? Is it that these are just highly productive women that can do it all? No, no. I'll tell you. Well, what I found was that women actually thought that they were handing over more tasks. What happened when I started to bring the Should I Do spreadsheet out into the world? What I started to hear was, you know, who does school forms in your household? Who's making lunches? And I kept hearing over and over again, we both do it. We both do it. We both do it. So I was not getting really clean data. So I had to start asking, and I call it now the life-changing magic of mustard because it was literally the best question I've ever asked in 10 years First best question I ever asked was, you know, what happens if we start to center the home as our most important organization? Because that's what I do. I develop organizational systems. So the second most important question, I guess, was how did mustard get in your refrigerator? So in a dual income earner household where there's a male identifying and a female identifying person, someone identifying as a woman, someone identifies as a man, what I found was in almost every instance in those 17 countries, a woman was saying to me that she's the one who noticed that her second son, Johnny, likes yellow mustard, and that's why it's in the refrigerator, because otherwise he chokes. He won't eat his protein. So I start to write that down because I understand that in organizational systems, that's something we call conception. We get paid big bucks to notice and create new things. And then I would hear, oh, and then I monitor the mustard for when it's running low, and I get stakeholder buy-in for my family for what they need on the list. 
I didn't hear the word stakeholder buy-in, but that's what I was listening for. And then I would hear, oh yeah, we both do it because my partner's the one who goes to the store. And Eve, you know, I sent him for French's yellow, but he brings home spicy Dijon every fucking time. And you want me to trust my partner with my living will? He can't even bring home the right type of mustard. What I was seeing was a classic organizational fail. And that's when you lose accountability and trust, the organization fails. That's what I was seeing. And so that was my aha moment. And it became so easy to build a system around what I call now that CPE fail, which is men suffer from execution bias. And so women actually think they're getting more help because they have somebody who goes to the store for them or who will bring home uh, the ingredients to cook dinner. But unless we actually deal with the conception and planning, the cognitive labor, we're going to be nowhere. And that was the big aha moment. That's why I believe that we haven't made more inroads because we've been focused so much on execution. This execution bias has not helped at all with the cognitive labor. And it's invisible. And it's why we've ne- we haven't made a lot of progress. It's insidious. I was just thinking, I think my husband bought six kinds of mustard because he didn't know what kind. <laughs> So thank you, Richard, for filling our cabinets with all the mustard, because one of them was going to (laughs) work. I appreciate that. I love it. What are we going to do with the other five mustards? I don't know. But that's, you know, another problem. (laughs) But by the way, back to men, why Fair Play ultimately became a love letter to men is because when you look at psychological safety, what does that mean? What does that term really mean? Well, somebody who's been studying this organizational management, the science of it for my entire career What we know is that not knowing your role is very, very toxic. When you have context, not control, that leads to a healthy organization. When you have control and no context, that leads to a very unhealthy context for an organization. And so many men said to me the number one thing that they hated about home life, actually the number one thing they hated about home life in aggregate in our word cloud wasn't I don't want to do more. It was I can't get anything right. If you hear that over and over again, you realize that there's a real problem for men as well. Nothing is working for anybody. Well, we've been talking a lot about heteronormative dynamics. How do you see more of these traditional gender roles play out in non-hetero couples? Well, it's a great question because in uh, mirroring the U.S. Census, we over-index on LGBTQIA families. And what's really interesting is that still, if you don't actively trade assumption for structured decision-making, there still can be real failures. And what I saw with gay couples, when there isn't gender as an assumption, money becomes the assumption. So the person who makes more money often does less. So it's back to that trope of, well, I get paid more, I do more, I'm the CEO outside the home, so you're going to become the CEO of the home, which is the worst type of assumptions you can have. And then in um, lesbian couples, which was super interesting, there was a lot of less CPE fails in that one person held the cognitive labor and the other person did the execution, but more of what I call a double up, which is that both parties were handling all the CPE for all the tasks. And that leads to a different type of inefficiency where you're, you have intensive togetherness and it's hard to differentiate and find what I like to call your unicorn space, the thing that makes you uniquely you, where this intensive togetherness became a real um, family structure for a lot of the lesbian couples that I interviewed. Sounds like it's so important to divide 
equitably and conquer. And that's really where that load comes in, which is if it's not uh, divided in half, right? If one person is taking on so much, or uh, in the case of, I think, that feedback you're getting from men, if they feel like they can't conquer because there's a lack of control that isn't there. Absolutely. And I don't believe in 50-50 because the truth is if you are somebody who works for pay and you're somebody who's not working for pay, then of course the cards are not going to look like 50 cards to one person and 50 cards to the other person. But what I'm here to say is that paid labor has a lot of other benefits that unpaid labor doesn't. And one person should never be in charge of all the cards. And when I had my blueberries breakdown, Lindsay, I was trying to build my own law firm and I didn't give up any cards to Seth. We had about 75 cards and I was holding every single one of those. And so for us, it just started with one. It started with saying to Seth, you know, thank you for believing in extracurricular sports for our kids. I'm glad that we both are on the same page, that we want our kids to participate in team sports. We think it's important for their for their development. But, you know, you showing up at the Little League field with them on Saturdays is not CPE of this one card. And so here's what's going to happen. Uh, I'm going to give you the name of the eight women that I'm carpooling with. And you'll be on the chain. I don't ever want to hear about the chain. Our minimum standard of care is that they come with protective gear and they get there on time with water. Uh, who cares about sunscreen or whether their uniform is okay? We're having this whole conversation about one card. You know, there's a hundred that you really are supposed to be having conversations about. And then finally, Seth said, well, what about um, which sports they want to play? And I was like, well, that's conception. You can decide with them. Survey their friends, see which leagues they want to play. You know, summer is different than fall. Yes, there's the AYSO website and the Little League website, and they're all different passwords, and they're from 1980, and they're hard to sign up for, and you have to print out 17 consent forms, and yes, you have to hand deliver them to the coach, uh, including the consent for that they can play, and this consent looks different, and then yes, you need a birth certificate, absolutely, yes, oh yeah, you do, you need a passport or a birth certificate, so yes, I'll show you where those are. Yes, you have to order equipment on Amazon, yep, and here's the account, because you're probably going to have to return it because it's not going to fit. And Seth was like, what, what are you even talking about? I said, that's six hours of my week right there. So one card, having Seth take over extracurricular sports at the time when I was not confident enough to say it should be 50-50 or close to that because I was still believing my own bullshit that my job wasn't valuable, that I should do more because I'm a woman and a better multitasker. Even handing over that one card, Lindsay, it changed the entire dynamic in our relationship because CPE became the fundamental tenant of how we did things. And then it started to snowball from there. I love the word you use, multitasker. As a mom, I feel like I've heard that women just assume this role of, I'm a great multitasker. And it feels like such gaslighting. It's gaslighting. Yes. <laughs> You're forced to carry this mental load, all of these jobs, the minute jobs within jobs. It's not multitasking. It's just a path to burnout. It's fascinating you were saying that because it is gaslighting. And I think at the time when I didn't know it was gaslighting, one of my most important interviews that still to this day almost makes me tear up because it was so triggering for me, this one neuroscientist who I love, when I went to him 10 years ago and said to him, are women better multitaskers? He looked at me, this top neuroscientist, and said, well, I don't understand what you're asking. I said, are women better multitaskers? And he said, well, culturally or you know, from a neuroscience perspective. I said, well, obviously I'm talking to you as a neuroscientist. I'm, I want to know if we're better multitaskers from a brain perspective. And he looked at me and he said, no. <laughs> he said, 
there's no gender difference in how the brain task switches. It's actually called task switching. It's not multitasking. He said, however, I will say culturally, if we men could convince you women that you're better at wiping asses and doing dishes, then I don't even have to convince you. I just get tenure faster. I get that distraction-free work. And you're doing it with a smile on your face. I started to just cry in his office. I couldn't, it was so traumatizing for me to hear it that way, as if I'd been gaslighted my entire life up until that moment. And it was like all of these cracks in my foundation of what I believed were coming apart in that office. From gaslighting back into the workplace. Let's take a, <laughs> let's take a moment to all think about those times uh, where we got the best mom Mother's Day mug. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you're great at multitasking, mom. And I just want to, like, throw all those mugs into a fire. We're going to throw it. But by the way, I think that same gaslighting, I think we can transfer it into the workplace because a lot of that gaslighting also exists in the workplace. We know that women now are, you know, three to four times as likely to be asked to do non-promotable tasks. Minda Hartz and I and Sarah Lacey wrote an article in 2020 that said women are drowning in unpaid labor in the home. Stop making them do it at work. And it was really about this idea of where does your DEI work sit? So that's the first question I would ask. Instead of going straight to benefits, that's the main question I ask organizations. Who makes decisions in your company? And when people say, start going off in a million answers, I'm like, no, 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 really? Who makes decisions? Where does you know the buck stop? And then from there, the most important thing as we start really thinking about leadership is I like to call it fair play fair day, fair pay, and fair say. So when companies can look holistically at fair play, which is do the male leaders in their organizations know the name of their children's dentist? Like that, that's important. Um, and do they, do, do they parent out loud? Fair day is the idea of predictable flexibility, right? That it's not just looking at a hybrid workplace but it's really understanding individually what matters for each employee and being able to help meet them where they are. That's a fair day. And fair pay is understanding that the home is actually, and the biases that we have for distraction-free work is why women are paid less. 75% of our wage gap is the bias for this distraction-free work. And then the last one is fair say, which is ultimately you know, what you're doing with Chief, which is making sure that the people who make decisions look differently than the white man, um, the white Christian man with the stay-at-home wife. So that's kind of through the corporate perspective of how much do you think it's really the role of the companies to be the change makers here versus broader societal change that needs to happen, whether through government or other things? Where do you think the biggest change can come from? Well, I thought it was supposed to come from, you know, the federal government, um, which is why <laughs> I put so much money into fighting for uh, access to paid leave and childcare in uh, what was supposed to be the landmark Build Back Better deal. But once we realized that infrastructure was going to go first, the male jobs were going first, I knew that we wouldn't get anything done um, for women because it, it doesn't work like that. We don't invest in women in this country. We never have. I think... Companies in a capitalist society have a really important role to play. But I also think it's really unfair that we only look at the companies that are led by women. But for me, the way I look at it right now is it's really about 
this idea of what the old paradigm looked like. The old paradigm was a butt in a seat. It was being always on. It was work in an office. It was uh, this idea that someone would be at home handling all of the unpaid labor. And I think really, as we move into this new paradigm of work, you know, we need all leaders to understand that there's so many more things. It's not going to just be your policies. Everybody talks about a culture, but a real culture is three things. It's explicitly defined expectations, fairness and transparency, and knowing your role. And most companies fall down on one of those things. If you have explicitly defined expectations when people are supposed to work and your managers understand that and you hold that boundary for people, if you have fairness and transparency into how work is assigned, and if you understand and know your role, you have context and not control, that's a healthy organization. And all the benefits, including childcare and paid leave, it all is going to depend. Like, I love them and they're the starting point. But but if no one uses them, if the, if the unlimited PTO means that nobody takes a vacation day at all, if men are not taking consistent paternity leave, then, you know, they might as well just like burn up on a, like, you know, we should take a match to those manuals in, a, the, in the dusty HR office. All of the the mental load you talk about for women, I always tell people I am the world's best dad because I like to hold myself to that standard because the standard we have set for being a great mom is just, it's impossible. I can't get there. I'm not even going to try. So I'm world's best dad. Buy me that mug, Carolyn. <laughs> I, by the way, that that is it. My friend was asked on a panel recently, how do you be a good mom and a law firm partner? And she said, well, I'm never, I've never ever tried to be a great mom. I just always try to be a great dad. That's it. That's the key. Well, Eve, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Thanks for having me. That was Eve Rodsky, author of the book and director of the documentary, Fair Play. I mean, that conversation hit me pretty hard. This topic is such a gut punch. And of course, we all know it's the reality, but to hear it in such clear terms broken out like that is kind of devastating. Have you ever had that blueberries moment, Lindsay? Oh my God. I think if I hit a blueberries moment in the pandemic, I 100% would have divorced my husband. And it's probably why there was so much divorce. But I can tell you this. I actually think my husband carries a lot more of the household weight than I do, yet I still get frustrated if I ever feel like I'm carrying a bigger mental load than him. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the argument that women are in less paying jobs, for instance, because they're better in caregiving roles instead of STEM roles, or that their brains are wired differently, and therefore women are better at cooking and cleaning, for example. And I know I'm a sample size of one, but I can definitely say I am not better at any of those things. No, you are not. (laughs) And honestly, the fact that we've collectively accepted that women are like neurologically different as this excuse for us to shoulder more of the household mental load is such crap. And even if we don't say it out loud, businesses reward people who are available at all times, without interruptions. Yeah, and women are penalized just because businesses assume that they're going to experience caregiving interruptions. And for every child a woman has, her salary gets cut by 4%. But father's salaries actually increase by 6%. Yeah. We need to do some real introspective work, too, because even I have to check myself to make sure I'm not displaying benevolent sexism. You know, the things like, 
giving assignments or special projects to people who aren't a parent or a new mom with the idea that I'm being kind instead of giving them the agency to decide for themselves. I literally did this today where I was hesitant to ask one of our senior leaders to travel for a work event because I assumed it would just be harder for her as a parent. Exactly. These kinds of biases are invisible and insidious. But with more awareness as leaders, we can start to reassess how we manage parents. Because making assumptions that women are better multitaskers, I can tell you from personal experience, is bullshit. That's all for this episode of The New Rules of Business by Chief. Don't miss out on all of our Chief content. You can get more podcast episodes by following this show on your favorite podcast app. And if you're more of a social media person, find us and join the conversation on LinkedIn. But if you're ready to up the ante, and if you're thinking about becoming a member of the Chief Network, head to our website, chief.com, where you can apply. As a member, you'll be connected with the most powerful network of executive women across the country. Thanks, Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Katrina Conan and Rial, Blaine Edens at Chief, and to our production team, Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Mary Dew, Gina Moravec, Hannah Pedersen, Madison Lesby, and Jason Mack. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Lindsay Kaplan. And I'm Carolyn Childers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>